One of the weird things, if you ever decide to read right through the Bible, is the great long lists of family trees. Uh, they keep turning up, great long lists of unpronounceable names, genealogies. And it can be pretty daunting, especially since there's a few of them, just the first few pages of the Bible in the book of Genesis. And many people who thought, oh, you know, I'm going to read through the Bible, I'm going to try and do it. It can't be that hard. They get to the genealogies and they might survive one, maybe two. They get to the third and like, is this the whole Bible? And so they give up then and there. But maybe if they think ahead, they go, oh, you know what? Maybe if I just flipped a part two of the Bible to the New Testament, to the book of Matthew, you know, that, maybe that'll be better. And so you flip up Matthew and then bang, another genealogy straight up. Great. Thanks, God. Uh, and it's even more daunting if you're the Bible reader rostered on for the reading of the lesson that day. And while there's a quirky few who love family trees and looking up all the details, most of us just tend to skip right through them and wonder if Matthew even just made a mistake including it. But it's not a mistake. God intended for us to hear this part of his word. One of the great tricks to listening is to listen to what a person says the way that they say it rather than just ignore the bits that are boring or that don't fit with our preconceptions. But a word of warning before we get into Matthew chapter 1 and the genealogy there. It's easy to get locked down on the minutiae and miss the forest for the trees. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're told not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which promote empty speculations rather than God's plan which operates by faith. The same again in Titus chapter 3, that you don't get into foolish debates about genealogies and quarrels about the law which are unprofitable and worthless. And there's some pretty deep rabbit holes that people go down, particularly in relation to Matthew 1. We'll dive down some of them tonight in the cutting room floor if you're interested in that. But for now, we're going to work out why God wants us to hear and understand this family tree, this genealogy. And I trust that as we work through it, you'll be really glad to have listened well to what he has to say here because it is something momentous. It's why he started the New Testament this way. All of the genealogies in the Bible have a purpose. There's a good reason for them. And you can figure out that purpose from answering three basic questions about them. One, who does it link together? Two, what's the pattern in them? And three, what are the exceptions to the pattern? I'll go through them again. Who does it link together? What's the pattern that they follow? And what's the exceptions to the pattern? You figure those three things out, you'll understand why God includes them, any genealogy in the Bible. And in Matthew chapter 1, neither of those three things is hard to work out. They're all explicit. Well, who does it link together? Well, it's there in verse 1, the opening line. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Who does it link together? It links Jesus to two absolute giants of the Old Testament, two men who turned out to be key to God's plans. Abraham, the forefather of the nation Israel, and David, the one who was the greatest king that Israel ever had. That is, if you want to understand the significance of Jesus... 
You've got to understand he's the son of Abraham and he's the son of David. We'll work out why soon. And and by son, he doesn't mean that either of those two men raised him as their own children. Jesus was generations after both of them. And he doesn't just mean descendant either. They both had many, many descendants. But what he means by son is heir. Jesus is the heir to both of these two men. Well, what about the pattern? What's that tell us? Well, that's explicit too. It's in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. What's the pattern? Well, there's a string of names grouped into three groups of 14 generations, three lots of 14, from Abraham to David, 14, from David to Babylon, 14, and 14 from Babylon till Jesus. Now, one particularly deep rabbit hole, which we might explore more tonight in the cutting room floor that some people want to go down, is that Matthew's obviously skipped some generations in order to make it a pattern of 14 particularly in the middle phase, from David to the exile, he skipped five or six generations. And in one line, he missed three or four just there on the way through. So how can he really claim that there are three lots of 14 when he's just fudged the numbers to make it that way? But Matthew's not setting out to give you the exact number of years between all these people and events as if somehow God is bound to sets of 14 generations before he can do something new. He's got to kind of relax for that period of time and then he can have another go. And, and he's not like the modern family tree hunter who's, who's trying to find the precise date of birth and the date of death and every connection between every individual. That might be a modern fascination, but, but it's not the only thing that you can do with genealogies. You think about the show DNA Nation where they get celebrities and they trace their DNA back to, to different cultures overseas. They're not looking at every connection and everyone in their family tree. They're just saying, well, this part of your uh, history must come from India or from the Aztecs or from the Vikings. Or, or there's the show, Who Do You Think You Are? They don't go through all the boring generations. Uh, they, they, they don't tell you everyone. They just pick out the interesting ones, particularly the ones that are great scandals, things that are highlights that make a great story. They're still presenting history. They're not lying about it. It's real history. But what they're doing is summarizing key points. They're showing the highlights and the lowlights and things that are significant in someone's background. And Matthew's doing exactly the same thing. And really what he's doing by this pattern is making two profound theological points, theological statements by this pattern. Two vitally important things to know about God and about God in what he's doing through Jesus and how God is relating to this world. The first big one is that from God's point of view, there's really only three phases to history that uh, leading up to Jesus. Three eras that matter in the history of the world and in the history of God's dealings with the world. Phase one is from Abraham to David. 
phase two from David to the time that Israel were all but wiped out by the superpower Babylon, the mightiest empire of ancient times who came and just crushed everyone and wrecked Israel and killed most of them and carted a few off into captivity and they were all but gone. And phase three was from that moment that they never recovered from up until the coming of Jesus. They're the significant moments. They're the turning points in history, not only in Israel's fortunes, but as it turns out, they're the turning points in God's dealings with the whole world. Now, we're going to see why shortly. The second part of the pattern relates to the three 14s. Why on earth does 14 matter so much? And why three 14s? And why does he have to skip generations in order to make it look like that? Now, that's a bit harder to work out. But as I've pondered it over the last two weeks, it's, it, it struck me just how important the number seven is in the Bible. You think about it. God made the world in six days and then rested on the seventh. You get the Ten Commandments and the law and God commands people to work six days and to rest on the seventh. And then later on, he says uh, that on the seventh year, you've got to rest your fields. Uh, and then every seventh seven year, every 49 years, there's, there's to be a year, the year of Jubilee, when uh, everything is to be reset. Every debt that's been accrued by anyone to anyone else in Israel is to be wiped out. Every slave set free. All the property that's been bought from uh, the people who owned it originally is, is to be returned to them. The, the fields are to go back. We saw in the book of Revelation in first term how important the number seven is there. There's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of God's wrath. The first six of them in each case, there's chaos and pain and misery. But then the seventh one comes each time, the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, the seventh bowl of God's wrath. And each time God is victorious. The plans of God are complete. He has victory and it's not... Uh, repeating over and over again. It's like an action replay from seven different points of view, just like in the cricket. But the seventh comes and justice is done and God's people are finally in joy and at rest. And if you're even passable at Mass, it turns out that three times 14 is the same as six times seven. That is... Matthew's telling us that there's not just three vital phases of history in God's dealing with the world, but in the coming of Jesus, it's the start of the seventh seven. It's the year of Jubilee. That's the point that he's making. That's the claim that Matthew is making. It's not about a precise number of years, but it's saying that in the in Jesus' arrival on this earth, it's the time of completion. It is the day of fulfillment. It is the day when people may enter God's rest. That is, it's a theological point that he's making. In Jesus' coming, the son of Abraham, the son of David has arrived, bringing about God's fulfillment of everything that he had been working towards the fulfilment of everything he had promised beforehand. That's what the pattern is teaching us. But there's also the exceptions to the pattern. And again, just like in the show, Who Do You Think You Are? 
Matthew points out some of the greatest scandals in Israel's history that happened along the way, and he does it by putting little exceptions into the pattern. Five times he says, instead of just saying, you know, and so and so was the father of so and so, he mentions the mother who's involved in the producing of that generation, that next generation. And when you look up each one of those five mums that's mentioned, uh, they're all moments of shocking scandal. Not that the woman involved was necessarily uh, the most evil person, but the whole situation was just horrible. Something that if you were trying to prove someone's legitimacy, you, you'd think you would cover that up. But Matthew puts them in to highlight them. And there's a good reason he did. So let's go back and figure out why all these things matter so much that God wants us to hear it and to know it. Why he's included this and why this is the opening of Matthew's gospel and the whole New Testament. So let's start with Abraham. Why Abraham? Why does he matter so much? Well, Abraham appears in the book of Genesis, right back at the start of the Bible. Uh, he turns up in chapter 12 of Genesis after an 11-chapter introduction, which the introduction explains really the, the terrible state that the world is in. Right, Nothing has changed throughout history, and the reason that we're in such a state is well, from a glorious beginning when God created everything and he created us and he made the world and it was wonderful and great, everything was fantastic, humans stuff things up good and royal. It happened when our very first forebears willfully, deliberately and explicitly rejected God's commands and did what they wanted instead of what God told them to do. And all chaos broke loose. You can read about it all in Genesis 1 to 11, how they rejected God, how God's curse came on humanity and death came, how the family disintegration that followed, the fights which led to hatred and to murder, and, and how in the end God brought disasters which, which nearly wiped out everyone and how he warns of worse to come. Do people heed the warnings? Do they apologize and turn back to God and say sorry to him? Do they, do they seek to make things right? No, not at all. Instead, they, they unite instead in their defiance against God, resulting in the Tower of Babel, which brings God's wrath as he divides and scatters humanity to the ends of the world and they can't communicate. It's bleak stuff. But that's the introduction to the book of Genesis and it's the introduction to the whole Bible explaining the state the world's in. But then Genesis 12 comes along and it's like a ray of sunlight shining through the storm clouds. God speaks to a man named Abraham and makes a, what's called a covenant with him. A covenant is, is, a, is a contract, a binding contract uh, and where God makes formal uh, and legal agreement with him. A covenant which uh, God enters with Abraham where he binds himself to fulfill certain incredible promises. And it's amazing. It's in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. Let's have a look. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your home and go to the land that I'll show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. 
and I'll curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And get this, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's the deal that God made with Abraham. God chose to give this man, Abraham, the inheritance of bringing blessings, God's blessings, to all the families of the earth. To bring blessings to this world of darkness and rebellion and ruin. Blessing that will, and it will come through Abraham's family. And later on, he says, you know, your offspring are going to be as many as the stars in the sky, or they'll be like the grains of sand on the beach. You're going to have a huge, uh, a huge nations are going to come from you, a huge lot of descendants. But, but one of your offspring is going to inherit the earth. And he is going to be the one who is going to bring all these blessings that the nations till now have only received curses from God. Things are going to turn around. So the whole of the Old Testament is looking forward to that one, to the one who is going to be the heir of Abraham, the one who is the heir of God's promise, the one who will bring God's blessing to all the nations of the earth. Well, what about David, this great king? Certainly he's noble, but why is he so important? Why does he matter so much? Why, why does he introduce a whole new phase of history according to God? Well, it's because God made a new covenant with David, another deal, another contract. It's in 2 Samuel and chapter 7, very important chapter in the Bible. It's in verses 11 to 13 that we're going to look at. David has become the king uh, and uh, he has conquered all his enemies and he wants to build a house for God. He wants to build this whacking great temple uh, in celebration of God and praise to him. But God's got a different plan. And so he says to David in verse 11 of 2 Samuel 7, The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. You know, you're not going to make a house for God. God's going to make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I'm going to raise up after you your descendant. He will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who'll build a house of my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the promise that God made to Abraham is now centered on one of his descendants, on David, who happens to be the king over Israel. And God says the house of David is always going to reign, but not just over the people of God. He's going to rule over all of the world, over all nations. And in fact, one of David's heirs, his descendants, is going to be the one, the one, one who will rule not just temporarily in the days of a normal kingship, but somehow he is going to rule forever. It will be endless. But he's going to rule in justice. He'll rule in peace. He'll rule in righteousness. And it sounds like this wonderful thing as he goes on to, to expand on what God's going to do in, in that contract, in that covenant. It sounds wonderful, but, but what happens? Well, from that moment on, uh, that moment of hope and promise that seems so great, in the generations that follow, things go from bad to worse, and it leads to Babylon and to the exile of Israel. Israel. 
Now, why is that moment of such destruction where Babylon came and wiped them out so important that Matthew highlights it for us as the beginning of the third phase of history? Well, because there's a direct line from David to Jesus, but there's a major collapse in the dynasty and in the royal house of David in the middle. A collapse that seems to bring everything undone. It looks as though God has failed. That God's promises, that they cannot come about now. Now you find it in lots of parts of the Bible. Uh, it's described in the despair that happens because of it. But, but one of the key ones is in Psalm 89, which is our first reading today. Now I'm just going to pick up a couple of bits from Psalm 89. It's a long psalm. But for example, in Psalm 89 and verse 3, The Lord said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn on oath to David, my servant. I'll establish your offspring forever and build up your throne for all generations. Well, that's just 2 Samuel 7, right? But the psalmist goes on because he's worried. He's worried that God's forgotten his promises. Why is he worried? Because all he can see is the great horror that has come on Israel. David's descendants went from bad to worse as kings. And while there were a couple of good ones along the way, the majority of them were absolute scum. They lived and acted just as the people did way back in Genesis. Proud, violent. They led the nation into idolatry and away from God. They, they, uh, they were self-interested. They, they, everything they touched, uh, just turned to disaster uh, as they gave God the finger, so to speak. They were, they were horrible times. You can read about the nastiness in the books of Kings and Chronicles. And in the end, God sent Babylon to wipe Israel out, to punish them for this evil, this rebellion that this people who were supposed to bring blessing to the world and God's promises were just failures. They were hopeless and, and degenerate and God destroyed them. Well, almost. And, and the psalmist looks around. He looks at Jerusalem that lies in ruins, the capital city where David had ruled from and had his throne established. He looks at the temple of God, which in the end did get built by David's son Solomon, but it now lies in ruins, every stone removed from each other. All of the gold of the temple that it was furnished with has been taken away by Babylon, never to be seen again. The vast majority of the people of Israel had been slain, over 90% of the population. We think COVID has been a great disaster in world population. The Babylon uh, invasion wiped out 90-something percent of the nation. They were dead to either famine uh, or the sword or the plagues that followed. As the, the, the farms were all gone, there was no food left to eat. They, it was just a massacre. And the last member of the royal family, well, he had been captured, he was imprisoned, he'd had his eyes poked out with a red-hot poker, and he lived in imprisonment in Babylon. And so you come down to verse 38 of Psalm 89. But you have spurned and rejected David. You have become enraged with your anointed 
You have repudiated the covenant with your servant. You have completely dishonoured his crown. You've broken down all his walls. You've reduced his fortified cities to ruins. All who pass by plundering him, he's become an object of ridicule to his neighbours. You have lifted high the right hand of his foes. You've made all of his enemies rejoice. Where is David's house ruling over the nations? David's house lies in ruins. The kingdom has been destroyed. The people are slaves. It's, it's all gone. And so here are the three phases of the history of Israel. God made a covenant with Abraham that he was going to bless the world uh, through one of his descendants. And, and until the time of David, things just went up and up and things were looking good. He made a covenant then with David that his son would rule in peace and justice forever over all the nations. But from David, it was all downhill until everything lay in ruin. And then from then on, it was days of utter darkness when it did not seem possible for that God could fulfill any of his promises. Israel never recovered. They were always an occupied force, slaves of someone else. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, it was all gone. But then comes Jesus. And with him comes the new start, the new beginning, the time of fulfilment. In fact, one thing I neglected to mention earlier was that the word translated as genealogy in the first sentence there in Matthew 1, you know, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The word genealogy is actually the word Genesis. This is the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Here is the new beginning. This is the fresh start. But if that's the case, why then the five mums? Because strangely, in the midst of this incredible claim of such nobility and royal importance and hope comes these five women. Now, of course, without mums, there'd be no dads and no children, but you don't need to trace the mums uh, to connect the family back to Abraham and David. And, and in fact, he, di- he didn't include any of the other mums, the ones who, you know, they just had a good, wonderful marriage with their husband. He, he only included the ones that were moments of such terrible scandal. Now, I'll just whip through them to show you. Uh, the first mums in verse 3, uh, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And if you go and read what happened, it is one of the most horrific, horrible stories in the whole Old Testament. Uh, there's a lot of bad ones, but this is this is up there. It's in Genesis chapter 38. You can look it up later if you want to have some nightmares. Uh, Tamar was terribly abused by uh, all of her in-laws, and in the end her father-in-law, Judah, mistook her for a prostitute, had sex with her, and fathered twins, Perez and Zerah. Now, it turns out she was more righteous than he was, and and in the end Judah came to see it. But there's certainly a big skeleton in the family closet of Israel that, um, you know, that incestuous relationship, intergenerational incest, and that the, the chief heir of Judah, the one from whom would come the royal line, was conceived because of such evil. That's a scandal. The second and third mums are both mentioned in verse 5. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. 
Obed father Jesse, who turns out to be the father of of David. Rahab wasn't just mistaken for a prostitute, she was one. And not just any old prostitute, she was a Canaanite, one of the people that Israel were told by God to go and kill every single man, woman and child of, to leave none of them left because of their degeneracy and their debauchery. They... That they use prostitution as part of their worship of their fertility gods of Baal and Asherah, but Rahab protected the people. She protected the spies, and was in turn promised protection during the invasion, and so she was saved. But it's still a scandal that a Canaanite prostitute of all people not just survived the invasion, but she. She was married into the family and not just any part of the family, but she was part of the royal line. And and in fact, she was one of the grandmothers of King David. But then there's another Gentile woman, Ruth in verse 5. She was a Moabite, not a Canaanite. So the Moabites were descendants of Lot. Uh, They came as a result of his drunken incest with his daughter. He got drunk one night and he got his daughters both pregnant and later the Moabites, who were the Moab was one of the children, Moabites seduced Israel into terrible idolatry. They also tried to conquer Israel. They were the enemy. But but Ruth's commitment to her Jewish mother-in-law, Ruth, is one of the loveliest parts of the, the whole Bible. It's, it's a beautiful story. Your God shall be my God, she says. Your people shall be my people. She is a great one. It's a great story. The book of Ruth stands alone. But but it's still shocking that the the purity of Israel's royal family could be so seriously compromised. And then there's Bathsheba, Solomon's mum. She's not even named here, but she's in verse 7. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. She's not even David's own wife. She's the wife of Uriah. That is, David had an affair with her and and he got her pregnant. Uh, And then he murdered her husband to cover the whole thing up. It is one of the low points of morality in the whole of the Old Testament that the great messianic king who God has already made these amazing promises, has made his covenant with, his binding contract, should so break the commandments of God, should so abuse one of the members of his kingdom and destroy that man and his family as a result of it. It is appalling. And again, she's also an outsider because Uriah and his wife Bathsheba were Hittites, right? Again, they were Canaanites who were supposed to have been wiped out. It's a scandal. But then finally, there's the fifth mother mentioned, the last link in the chain. She's in verse 16. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Messiah. We haven't heard her story yet, but Matthew's about to tell it in the very next section how she was already pregnant before her marriage and she wasn't pregnant to her fiancé, Joseph, how he was going to divorce her because of her presumed adultery until he's told by the angel not to do so, that it's not the case. But, but still, there's yet another scandal in this long line. 
And so here's Jesus' lineage. His, his genealogy, which, which is the new Genesis, but, but it's filled with such scandal that Matthew's highlighting for us. So what's the takeaway message? Why is God telling us these are the people and this is the way it happened? Well, here's three things to take away. They're not the only things, but here's three. The first is that God's showing us that this is history. This is how it happened. It's, it's not a myth. It's not mythological. The word myth occurs five times in the New Testament. And it, every time the New Testament, God says that myths are stupid. They are made up things that no one in their right mind should believe. You would be a fool to follow a myth. It's history that God's concerned about and he wants us to know real history. This, this happened. And, and here is, here it is. What's and all? The people aren't glorified. Right, this isn't a hagiography as, as many other writers. You know, these are not glowing saints. No, this is here it is, warts and all. This is history. And so, second thing that God wants us to hear is He's showing us that He doesn't make choices like we do. God doesn't make decisions. It's not all the beautiful and the powerful people that you might expect. That the five mums are people you would never think would be part of God's plans. Unions that we would never bless are the very ones that God has woven into the ancestry of Jesus Christ. That brings us to the final takeaway message. Here's the big one. God's highlighting for us the whole reason he made the promises to Abraham in the first place. And then to David, why they needed to come. The whole reason that one of their descendants was needed, promised by God, sent by God, is because it's people like this that Jesus is coming to save. Abraham's family are just as sinful and rotten as the rest of humanity. It's a family line full of Gentiles who were supposed to be outsiders. It's full of sinners who did the very things that brought God's curse and judgment in the beginning. And, and the sinners were insiders to Israel and outsiders. It was the men and the women. A family that became so corrupt from the leadership down that God sent them into captivity in Babylon and all but wiped them out just as he all but wiped out humanity many years before in Genesis in chapter 6 in the flood that killed everyone except for Noah and his family of eight. But here is the new Genesis. This is the beginning of something wonderful. Jesus comes not to a godly line in order to secure the privilege of the pure, but he's coming to save a world in rebellion against God, to bring God's blessings to all nations, to rescue humanity living in its rebellion against God, to bring a new kingdom of peace where people can can relate rightly again to God, forgiven, a kingdom which he will reign over forever in justice and righteousness, just as was promised to David, a kingdom made up of Jew and Gentile, a kingdom made up of sinners who've been welcomed back and paid for and forgiven. That 
is who Jesus is coming for. That's who he's come for. It's why we need him so much. The one come to bring God's rest. The seventh seven. This is the one who God planned for all along. And so the question I want to leave you with today is, do you know him? Do you know this one who is the fulfillment of all of God's plans, all of the, the work he was doing and preparation that he put into, the one coming to bless all nations, the one coming to bless you if you'll but trust him and receive the forgiveness and the life that he's offering. This is the one that's he's come to meet all of our hopes and fears. That's why he came. Do you know him? We're going to get to know him a whole lot better over the next few weeks as uh, we do Christmas in July together, both in church and I'm hoping that maybe uh, some of us will have uh, a get-together to do Christmas in July and just remind ourselves how wonderful it is that Jesus has come for us. And we're going to be looking at it in our church services over the next month as we see how God worked it all out, how Jesus really is the one who's come to do all of that and more. I hope you'll be able to join us as we move through it all. Why don't we pray? Our Father, we thank you that long ago, when no mind had conceived it, when the world has already broken and lain rebellion to you, you saw the way ahead and you made promises which you kept and you uh, so wonderfully kept after many, many years, you brought your son, Jesus, the one who would bring us into your rest, the one who would reign forever, the one through whom all blessings come. Father, we pray that we might know him. If we're not sure yet and confused, we pray that these next few weeks we might understand just this is exactly who he is and how it's all happened and how it's all so real and how you brought about it in his birth, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. We pray that we might understand that you are true to your word and that there is hope and life, but it's only found in Jesus. Father, please have mercy on us. And we pray for our world living in such rebellion against you, our city, our nation, uh, all the nations of this world. They're in such anxiety at the moment in the midst of crisis with you know, disease and death reigning. They've come as a result of your judgment, not, not a particular thing at the moment, but as a result of the judgment way back at the beginning of Genesis when you brought curse on the world in its rebellion. We pray that this moment in time might be the moment of great turning to you. We pray that for ourselves and we pray that for our nation and for this world. Please show that Jesus is the only hope and bring people to faith in him and help us to remain secure in him as well. In his name we pray. Amen.